from his holy word. Coming off for vacation, refreshed, eager to preach. And the clock says it is only 11.27. Of course, you know what a clock means to a preacher. Absolutely nothing. (laughs) Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would uh, fill us with uh, your spirit as we uh, have heard your word uh, read and as we have sung your word, as we have prayed your word, and now as I have the honor and responsibility of proclaiming it. I pray that you would uh, expand our souls to uh, obey the Lord Jesus Christ in everything. That is our desire. Fill us, we pray, with your spirit as you fill us with your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, understanding the reason why Paul wrote 1 Timothy opens up for us the rest of the letter. And I've uh, given the reasons for, for why Paul wrote uh, 1 Timothy, but if you will please allow me to restate those reasons. Uh, 1 Timothy was written because heresy uh, was being taught in the congregation by some of the elders. This heresy was threatening to destroy the congregation in Ephesus from within. The church in Ephesus had a great beginning. Paul spent over two years planning the church. It not only grew phenomenally within the city, but business people, as people were coming in from all over Asia Minor to Ephesus, they were being converted and taking back the gospel, back to their towns, back to their cities, uh, back to all over Asia Minor. So many people came to Christ in those two plus years that Paul was there preaching and teaching that Acts 19 verse 10 reports that this continued for over two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Phenomenal evangelistic ministry taking place in Ephesus. But after only seven short years, the evangelistic fervor had dimmed. It had dimmed significantly. Instead of being a light on the hill, the church had become ingrown and had become ineffective. They were navel-gazing, as uh, some theologians might put it, becoming self-centered and self-absorbed. Genealogical lists and speculations about the law were becoming more important than the Lord Jesus Christ and His gospel. Only seven years. A church planted by the Apostle Paul himself going off the rails so quickly. How could this happen? Let me give you a visual example. The Great Commission lays out a balance. I don't like the word balance. I like fullness. Um, But... Uh, For the sake of this illustration, I'll use balance. And Matthew 28, verses uh, 19 and 20, the Great Commission, says this, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. So the church is to be going and making disciples, doing evangelism. 
baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you even to the end of the age. So we're to go make disciples. This is evangelism. But we're to be an effective mission, in other words. It's not... Um, it's non-negotiable. Go make disciples. If we're not making disciples, we're being ineffective. He wants us to go and make disciples. He expects us to go and make disciples. But then we are to connect those disciples in the local church. We're to disciple these new converts to Jesus Christ. We're to teach them to follow and obey Jesus. As it says in the Great Commission, we are to teach them to observe all that Christ has commanded. Not some, not partial obedience, but all that He has commanded. And we do that, we do that training, that discipleship within the body of Christ. A Christian grows best within the body of Christ. Someone who is disconnected from the body of Christ, seeking to be a lone ranger in their Christianity, is going to be stunted by definition in their growth. We all grow up together into Him who is head. We all grow up together as a body. And so, the Great Commission lays out this principle of being an effective mission and a safe home or a church family, however you'd like to put it. And so we'd want to have this balance, an effective mission and a safe home or a church family. The problem is we like being a church family. It's a lot easier than going out there and doing evangelism. It's a lot easier fellowshipping with each other than it is going and confronting a stranger with the gospel or going and confronting a family member who is an unbeliever, and telling them to repent of their sins and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Fellowship is a lot easier than evangelism. And so what happens is that balance shifts. It's almost like there's a, a, if there were a boulder here in the middle, because we like being a church family, it shifts, and, and like a seesaw, the, uh, it comes down on the side of fellowship, being a church family, and uh, our job is to push the boulder, so to speak, to balance out where we're an effective mission and a a safe home or or um, a a church family where we can grow in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's, I think, the reason why the church in Ephesus... Uh, fell off the rails so quickly is they lost track of their effective mission. They began giving their attention to these false teachers who were speculating and probably had these wonderful, glorious-looking charts showing the genealogies and tracing back genealogies. I'm a real child of Abraham and all this stuff. And then these speculations about the laws. And as they they began following these... these um, these teachers that were teaching uh, false, um, false doctrine, their evangelistic fervor uh, began to grow dim. And that, ful- that fulcrum began to shift where they became ingrown and began to stop caring about lost. If we ever 
begin ignoring evangelism in favor of fellowship. Fellowship's a wonderful thing. Fellowship is necessary. We grow in Christ in fellowship. We grow up together as a body. But if we ignore evangelism and opt only for fellowship, we will go off the rails as quickly as the church in Ephesus. So Paul sent Timothy to Ephesus to set things straight. Paul solemnly charged Timothy in, verse, in chapter 1, verse 12, to wage the good warfare. He says, This charge I entrust you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecy previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. And we talked about what that meant a few weeks ago. How's Timothy to wage this good warfare? Well, Paul doesn't tell him to put on the spiritual armor. We might expect, Timothy, go put on the spiritual armor. He doesn't say that to him. He doesn't tell him how to marginalize these these elders who are teaching bad doctrine. So, how does he tell him to engage in the good warfare? What is Timothy to do? Well, that brings us to our text. Timothy was to wage the good warfare by prioritizing congregational worship. He says in verse 1, first of all, and this is not first of all in chronology, first of all in time, but rather first of all in priority. Your first concern, Timothy, Paul is saying, I urge you that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. In fact, all of chapter 2 is about congregational worship. We're going to spend a few weeks talking about what congregational worship uh, is supposed to be according to Scripture. We're going to go a little outside of uh, 1 Timothy to consider this question. We'll even go and um, take up a couple of, or take up an issue that the session has been studying in regard to uh, congregational worship. And so we're going to spend a few weeks here in chapter 2. Paul's telling Timothy, you are to engage in the good warfare by engaging in congregational worship. So how is worship waging the good warfare in the church? The false teachers, well, they were teaching some shiny new doctrines that were... um, gaining people's attention. And so the congregation, taking their eyes off of Christ, looking at the shiny new but false doctrine. And it was lifting up the popularity and prominence of these false teachers. But in the church, God alone should have the prominence. In public worship, God is central. In a church service where God is at the center, then everybody participating and leading shrinks in prominence. We are not here gathered this morning for you to come and get your spiritual recharge for the week. That is not our first priority. We are here this morning because God calls His people to worship Him. We are here this morning because of God. We're the beneficiaries of the worship we're giving Him. But we are here 
for Him. You are here to give God the worship. God's the audience. We are the performers. I said a couple of weeks ago, as the preacher, I am only a servant helping us give God the prominence that is rightly His and His alone. Public worship, though, when we worship God, when we give Him the prominence, it becomes for us a weekly recalibration where where we are reminded how big God is and therefore necessarily how small we are. But this is a good thing because as we shrink in our estimation, we are reminded that we fit nicely in the palm of our sovereign God who loves us. Right? Public worship acts as a recalibration because you are reminded that there's a life that transcends the day-to-day existence that the world is out there living. It reminds us that we are living in God's world. It reminds us that God is the Lord and we are not. For that reason, we believe that worship should not be just an extension of typical life. Public worship should have an otherworldly reverence that lifts our attention heavenward. Colossians chapter 3, set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. I understand the attraction to contemporary worship. It makes it easier for a new Christian to transition into the church. It makes it easier for non-Christians to visit and feel comfortable while they hear the gospel. Contemporary worship offers a bridge from the world into the church. But I want you to consider how the Bible describes what the atmosphere of worship should be like. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22 through 29, the writer of Hebrews says, But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, the innumerable angels and festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. And as you're in the congregation, see to it that you don't refuse God's Word. And he continues, For if they did not escape when they refused Him who warned them on earth, how much less will we escape if if we reject Him who warns from heaven? At that time His voice shook the earth, but now He has promised, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that, that is, things that have been made, in order that things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful, for we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, Paul was upbraiding and rebuking the congregation in Corinth for their disorderly and free-for-all worship. And he said that if an unbeliever were to come into their circus atmosphere um, worship service, he, they, um, this unbeliever would think that the congregation was collectively out of their, their minds. 
Now, I'm not saying contemporary worship is a circus atmosphere. That's not what I'm saying at all. But I'm saying in Corinth, it was disorderly. It was something just short of a circus uh, to hear Paul describe it in, in 1 Corinthians 14. But then he says, as he says this, he describes what the attitude and what the reaction uh, of an unbeliever should be when they come into uh, a God-centered, Scripture-driven worship service. Uh, he says, uh, and I'm quoting from First Corinthians 14, verse 24 and 25, and if, if an unbeliever or an outsider enters, he is convicted by all, and he is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. In other words, Paul's concern is that an unbeliever, when they come into the worship of God, where the saints are gathered, it should be uncomfortable. Because the Word of God should pierce their soul. And they, as Paul says, um, the secrets of their hearts will be disclosed. Falling on his face, he'll worship God and declare, God's really among you. The goal of worship is to bring all of us face to face with God. Living in the 21st century is busy. It's fast-paced. It's potentially all-consuming. We need to be reminded that God is really among us. This in turn reminds us not to live for the moment or to live for the next pleasure. Life is to be lived for God. Life is to be lived by walking in, by faith in the Son of God who loves us so much that He submitted to that awful cross for our salvation. congregational worship, the public worship of God should remind you that in Christ you are a child of God. That in Christ you are to live above the frivolousness of the world. That in Christ you can do all things who gives you strength. The public worship of God is designed to do that. We are more or less effective at trying to do that. That's our goal. Week in and week out. To keep God front and center. To give Him the worship, the praise. To ourselves shrink in humility before Him. And remember that we are in His hands. The public worship was central to how Timothy was to wage the good warfare by humbling the heretics and reminding the congregation that this shiny new teaching was not their priority. Rather, God was their priority. Not some loudmouth false teacher. And Paul did not emphasize the public worship in general, but he emphasized intercessory prayer in particular. So again, look at verse 1. First of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgivings be made for all people. Why did Paul lift up intercessory prayer as a first importance in the worship service? Is prayer more important than preaching? Is prayer more important than singing? 
offenses and away from the influence of the false teachers. The church in Ephesus has, as I previously mentioned, used to be a mighty evangelistic church. But they had lost that emphasis. They had lost that first love of, of Christ and the gospel. They had lost what it meant to be lost themselves. Began taking it for granted. And began to stop loving the lost as Christ loves the lost. And Paul knew that they would return to this emphasis in evangelism, or if they would return to this emphasis in evangelism, these false teachers and their false teaching would become of less concern. They would lose their allure. You know, I firmly believe that Christians long to be involved in great things for the gospel. There is no greater joy that a Christian can have than seeing someone come to faith in Jesus Christ, especially if God has used you to be the midwife, if He has used you to tell someone about Jesus Christ, and that person has turned to Christ in, in faith and repentance because you were faithful to open up and proclaim Christ to them. When people are coming to faith in Christ, it affects the whole church. The whole church is full of joy, full of energy, full of joy, or full of vigor. When people are coming to faith in Jesus Christ, the whole congregation gets a bounce in its step. The incidental and the petty objects that seem so important when nothing else is really happening those things fall away very naturally, fall by the wayside. They're not as important when people are coming to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think this is Paul's strategy. He's saying to the congregation, ask God for mighty conversions and the church will easily leave off following these false teachers. How do I know Paul is uh, calling them to pray for evangelism? How do I know that Paul is not calling them to pray for a new church building? Because um, verses uh, 1 through 4 make it very clear that Paul is calling them to pray for conversions. He says, first of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. Not just people in the church, but for all people. In fact, he goes on, verse 2, For kings and all those who are in high places, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. There were no, there were no kings at this point in history who were Christian kings. And so he's saying, pray for non-Christians. Pray for the people in power. Of course, they were praying also for the poor. Pray for everybody in between. Pray for all people, he says in verse 1. For kings, all those in authority... And for everybody else, they'd be tempted not to pray for the kings who were non-Christians. You know, I just read uh, this week uh, where when the the Germans invaded uh, Netherlands, or as I like to call it, the country of Holland, um, the the, uh, Dutch pastors began praying for Hitler's conversion began praying for Hitler to have wisdom in how he ruled over them. Because Timothy told us to pray 
for kings and all those in authority. Not just those in authority that we like and appreciate, but for all those, even those who might be uh, eager to suppress Christianity. We should especially pray for them. And so he continues, um, verse 3, This is good and is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. So, we are to pray for all people because God desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. And at the same time that Paul instructed the church to pray for kings and all those who are are in high positions, as I said, there were none who were Christians. In fact, who was the uh, Roman emperor when 1 Timothy was written? None other than Nero himself, one of the most godless and wicked rulers to ever walk the face of the earth. And so it's clear that the church, Paul's telling the church to pray evangelistically. When we pray as a congregation, at the center of our prayers must be the intercession for the salvation of souls. This emphasis reminds me of how the Father told the Son to pray in Psalm uh, 2, verse 8. God the Father said to Jesus in Psalm 2, a, a a messianic, Christ-centered psalm. God the Father said, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. God the Father is simply saying to Jesus, Pray for the salvation of the nations, and I will give them to you. World history is unfolding according to Jesus' prayer and God's answer. Paul is telling the Ephesian church to ask God for mighty conversions, even from among the greatest and the most wicked. And the implication is, I will answer those prayers. He's not telling them to pray those prayers just to keep them busy. The implication is that he will answer. This passage has been hitting me like a rock this week. You know, I pray for conversions but we see so few come to Christ that I don't expect mighty conversions. I'm too easily content, in fact, if none are being converted. That's unbelief on my part, and for that I am repenting. The implication is that if we are not seeing mighty conversions, our prayers are deficient in some way or fashion. I think this is why Paul spit out multiple kinds of prayers that we are urged to pray. He says, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all, for all people. What's the difference between a supplication and a prayer? What's the difference between a supplication and an intercession? You know, I read all these commentators this week, and they have all their opinions. All their opinions vary in some way or fashion. So uh, that teaches me that um, with so much disagreement, I'm not sure that any of them have a real answer. doesn't mean that I don't have an opinion. My puny opinion here is what Paul is saying is that multiplying types of prayer 
um, in, in verse 1, teaches us that we are not to get too comfortable in any one style of prayer. If we're not seeing mighty conversions, then maybe we should be more specific in our prayers. Or if we're not seeing mighty conversions, maybe we should be more urgent and fervent in our prayers. One of the, the, the Puritans said, God hears no more than the heart speaks. And if the heart be dumb, God will certainly be deaf. Or if we're not seeing mighty conversions, then maybe we should pray with tears. God is telling us to pray for all people to be saved because He desires it. Verse 4, This is good and pleases God who desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. If we are not seeing people come to faith in Jesus Christ, we've got to change how we pray. Philip Hughes says, When we observe how the church of Christ has prayed and lived down through the centuries, there's little doubt that the slow progress of the gospel is due to prayerlessness more than anything else. God works powerfully through prayer. He, and so Philip Hughes is right. There are many prayers that are not prayer at all. A.W. Pink says that Christians, in his opinion, sin more in their efforts to pray than in anything else that they engage in. If you're not seeing answered prayer, don't question God. Don't fall back in your faith. Examine yourself. Examine your heart. Examine your prayers. Are you going through the motions when you pray? Or are you being driven by selfish desires? James chapter 4 verse 3 says, You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. It is possible to pray wrongly. It is possible, James is saying, to pray sinfully. I read this week, about how F.B. Meyer, the great biblical scholar in the late 1800s and early 1900s, he was a friend of, um, of uh, the great evangelist up in Chicago, um, D.L. Moody. And he walked into a prayer meeting, and A.B. Simpson, the founder of the Christian Missionary Alliance, was in this prayer meeting. And when F.B. Meyer walked into the prayer meeting, he saw A.B. Simpson down on his knees, clutching with both hands a globe of the world and crying out, God, save the world. God, you've promised to give the nations to Christ as its inheritance. Do it, Lord. Do it, Lord. Do it, Lord. As tears were running down his cheeks. Maybe God is calling us to that kind of fervor if we're not seeing mighty conversions. What I'm saying is that we must not, we cannot be content with prayers that are ineffectual or lacking in fervor and power when we are, if we are not seeing people coming to know the Lord Jesus Christ. 
you know, I'm only scratching the surface of this passage, and I'm right at the end of what I was going to say this morning. I'm going to return to this uh, same passage next week, Lord willing. In the meantime, this week, I urge you that you make supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings for all people. For kings, for those who are in high positions. Because God desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Maybe your prayer life is such or not such that you need to begin by urgently urgently asking God to teach you to pray. Every Christian I know struggles in their prayer life. And many give up praying Uh, effectively because there's no power or no answers in their prayers. Sadly, and I've read, I don't get out much to other churches, but I've heard that other churches have taken their intercessory prayers and basically eliminated them or shrunk them down to the the size of a minute or two um, praying for the, the health needs in the church. Paul is telling the church... Be expansive in your intercessory prayers. Embrace the whole world. Pray for all people and all types of people, whether they be high or low and everyone in between. Pray for their salvation. May we never hinder our intercessory prayers here at Westminster Presbyterian. God has given us His Spirit to help us to pray. Jesus Christ has thrown the doorway of heaven wide open by His death and resurrection. And He bids us to approach the throne of grace with full confidence because He loves us so. So let us cling to the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us examine ourselves and, 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 and find out why our prayers aren't as effective as they should be. And then let us wear Him out with our coming until we see mighty conversions. Christ has promised He will do it. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we ask that You would, even as we prayed earlier, bring mighty conversions. Lord, not because we want to see um, more people coming to, to Westminster Presbyterian Church, but Lord, because we want to join you in your cause. We want to see all peoples coming to know the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to see people uh, saved from their sin and their empty way of life to come to know the life and joy of being in Jesus Christ. So pour out your Spirit. Help us to pray. Teach us to pray. We ask... In Jesus' name, amen.